Y'all can take a seat. Hey, it's good to be with you. Uh, I don't think I introduced myself earlier. Uh, My name's Travis. I'm the college and career pastor here. And so if I haven't met you, I would like to meet you uh, if it is your first time or maybe you've been a few times, but we haven't met yet. Uh, It's good to be with you tonight. We're on the second week of a series that we began last week uh, called The People of God. And in it, we are discussing really what the church is. So we're discussing what are the marks of the church, what are, what are some of the, the symptoms of the church, if you will. Uh, if we were to point out a church, what would be the things that would cause us to think that's a church? And so there were two definitions that were kind of thrown at you last week, and you, you may not remember them, so let me kind of toss them your way once again, because it seems to me that when we talk about the church... Uh, in the Bible or, or just in Christian conversation, there's really two things that we mean by it. And so uh, the first thing that we might mean when we say the church is something we would call the universal church. And what I mean by that is the people of God throughout history and throughout time and across all locations and geographies and tribes and tongues and nations. There is this universal church that kind of spans across everything in history up to Christ's return. And so that's, that's one thing we might mean when we say the church. But there is another sense in which we can use the word church, and that would be the local church. The local church is the time-bound expressions of the universal church. It's the outposts, if you will. And so in Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, you see something of a picture of that. There's this passage that's really famous among Christian circles called the Cloud of Witnesses. And the author of Hebrews takes this picture of people running a race. Uh, And I don't know if you knew this or not, but football wasn't quite a thing in the ancient world. But... Um, like Olympic, yeah, surprising, right? Shocking. Uh, I, I mean, I still don't understand it, even though it is a thing now. But that's, that's just me. That's my problem. I have to deal with it. Uh, but in the ancient world, races and, and triathlons and thing like, things like this had, had great value. And so uh, people would gather to watch these foot races. And so the author of Hebrews draws on this image of people running a race surrounded by people in the stands cheering them on. And he describes the people in the stands as actually being the people who've run the race before them. Uh, People like Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Jacob. And he lists all these great people of God. And he says, since you're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses and it's your turn to run, run with perseverance, knowing that at some point your race will come to an end and you will join the crowd. And so what we have is a picture of the universal church in the crowd of witnesses and the local church running the race. It's the people who are now at the church up the road on Bloomingdale or in Tampa or in Atlanta or across the world. That's the local church, the people running the race now. And so we're having a conversation about what the church is and and especially how we can kind of look at a local church and say, hey, this is a church in line with what Jesus' mission is. And this might sound like a really unhelpful topic to you. In fact, maybe uh, if you haven't been with us before, uh, maybe you're joining us for the first time after being away from church for a while, you might hear that and go, yeah, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's a common phrase. It gets thrown around a lot. I think I've said it before myself, that, that I love Jesus. He's great. He's cool. He's got a beard and long hair and flowing gowns. Um, but the church, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. And, and it seems as though culturally, uh, if you look at the, the polls and the statistics that are coming out of just this generation that we're in, this millennial generation, uh, there is this sense that the church is this 
this human institution. It's this human idea that, that was conceived by some old dead guys in the Middle East. And, and it's really just kind of a bump in the road to Jesus actually doing what he wants to do with the world. And so it's okay to hate the church because Jesus probably doesn't care for the church either because it's getting in the way of what he really wants to do. The unfortunate reality is that that idea is culturally conditioned. It is not biblical. Because when you look in the New Testament about what it says about the church, we get statements like this, that husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church. He loved it so much that he died for it. So how do you square that with hating the very thing that Jesus loved enough to give his life for? You get statements like the one that Jesus made to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not triumph over it. So how do we square that with you despising the very thing that Christ is building? Or we get statements like Ephesians 2.10, which has often been preached to us as this self-help text of you are God's workmanship, so feel good about yourself because God doesn't make mistakes. And this idea is in Scripture, right? We can read in the Psalms that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made that God uh, produces people and, and, and creates people with purpose and with intention, and, and he doesn't make mistakes in his creation of people. But Ephesians 2.10 is not talking about you. It's talking about the body of Christ, when you read it, Paul is talking about this mighty work Jesus has done in the church. And so he says, we, the church, were God's workmanship. So the church is not a human idea. It's not something some people came up with in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It is the very work of God. It is how God has chosen to work. It is how Jesus desires to accomplish his mission. And so if the church is the work of God, we should be committing to understand, be committed to understanding why God has chosen to work in this way and what it looks like for the church to work in the way that Jesus intended for it to work. And so we've been walking through this. And so the first question that we asked concerning the church, what, what the marks of the church are, is how does God create his people? Uh, and the reality is that when you ask this question, there's a better question behind it, which is very simply, how does God create anything? And, and when you read Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, it makes it very clear. God creates in Scripture by speaking. God speaks and it is so. God's creative power is expressed in his word. And so when it comes time for God to have a nation, which we would call the nation of Israel, how does he create Israel? The word of the Lord comes to Abraham in Genesis 12. God speaks to him and he creates a people. And when the people get muddled up in Egypt, how does God draw his people back out? The word of the Lord comes to Moses in the bush. He speaks to them. And when the people of Israel go astray and worship idols and sacrifice their children in the fires of Moloch, which sounds like a black metal song, when they go astray, how does God fix it? The prophets go to Israel and they say, hear the word of the Lord. That God's word goes forth to fix what's gone wrong. And so if we just want to ask this question, what's the basic mark? What is a church fundamentally about what are the people of God? We can actually rule out a few things. The people of God are not united by shared musical tastes. Uh, the people of God are not united by shared economic status or by shared political affiliation. Uh, they're not united by similar preferences in reality television. The people of God are not united even by the fact that they come from the same ethnic backgrounds. No, instead the people of God are the people of God of the word of God. God doesn't create his people 
by knitting together folks with the same interests. He brings people together by his word. But it's a funny thing that by and large, the church is hell-bent on creating itself around all the things that God doesn't use to create. You can look not just here, but really anywhere in the West, and you've got the tattooed church, right? This is the church where all the people with tattoos and piercings go, and the skate church, and the skinny jeans church, and the church that takes coffee really seriously. And this is the really formal um, pantsuit church. Is that formal? I don't know. <laughs> Pantsuits or something else. Um, but but we, we try to define our churches by all these things, but, but what Scripture seems to say is God doesn't define his people by that. He defines it by his word. So the primary mark of the church is that it is a people of the word. And the word doesn't just create the church. It's not just what we center ourselves around when we come together. The word of God gives life. There's this fundamental misunderstanding among us as Christians, that the church is full of good people who need to be made better. This is not true. The church is full of dead people who must be made alive. In Ezekiel 37, he's given a vision. And in the vision, Ezekiel sees a field of death. It's called the vision of the dry bones because things are very, very dead. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And he says, essentially, I don't know, but you do. And God says, they can Speak to them my word, and by my word I will give them life. And so you may notice something about the way that we do things here as, as a ministry of Baylife Church. Uh, and it's, it's not a slander against anything else that any other church might do. But, but the way that we function as college and career ministry is born out of a very deep conviction that we are dead people that need to be made alive. And pizza parties won't do that. <clears throat> and funny videos won't do that. And really crazy light shows won't even do that. And none of them are bad things. In fact, I think all of them are good things in their appropriate place. But they do not give life. It is the word of God that gives life to his people. And so we center everything we do on the word. Lastly, the word makes God's people more like the one who speaks. Jesus prays, sanctify them. He's praying for the church. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so last week, you're brought up to speed officially. That, that the church is a people of the word. That's, that's the primary mark is that we are a people who submits to what God has said in scripture. So you and your friend at Starbucks having a real deep conversation about something random, even if you're both Christians, isn't the church. You might be two members of the church, but the church begins to happen when this book is at the center of our gathering. So... We've, we've kind of established that this is kind of a primary mark of the church, that it is the word of God that creates the people of God. And so if you go looking for a church, and that is one of the understandings behind this series, I'm not so naive as to think that everybody in this room is going to live here forever uh, and, and that you're always going to go to Baylife or whatever church you're in. I realize uh, that there will come a time where you and your wife or your husband or your wife and your husband, your wife, your family, should you ever have one, or choose not to have one. You will have to go somewhere and you will have to find a church. And if the standard by which you judge the church is simply whether or not the word church is on the sign, we have a problem. Because I think we can universally agree that the word church in the name does not a church make. Let me give you some really hard to disagree with examples. The church of Satan. 
Church is in the name. Nobody, and you can try and argue it with me. I'm just going to laugh at you. Uh, but nobody's going to say that the church of Satan is the kind of church that the New Testament is talking about. In the same way, we can look at, really, the, the teachings of, of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. While church is in the name, when you look at the teaching, it's pretty hard to make a case that it's the kind of church that the New Testament authors envision. And so part of the hope here is that as we talk through it, you would begin to say, hey, these are the things that the church should be about. And, and if my church is not about them, or if we as a church are not about them, that there would be conviction. Or if you are blessed to be at a church that's committed to these things, that you would press into those things and recognize that it's God's grace in your life, that he's put you in a ministry committed to the things that honor him. And so, the, the first thing we've said, to bring it full circle... Uh, the church is a people of the word. But I think we need to go a little bit further in our description here. And I know for some of you who are boots on the ground type people, you're going, oh my gosh, get to something like really solid that I can just go and do next week or tomorrow or in two or three days. And I get that. Believe me, I want to get there too. But before you can put boots on the ground, you need to make sure that the ground is firm and steadfast. And so last week... And this week is about laying the groundwork for what the church is built on. And then going forward, we talk about what it is that the church does. So we're a people of the word, but I think we need to take it a step further. Because the reality is that if we leave it at people of the word, it can go crazy real fast. Let me give you an example of of what I mean by that. Um, I recognize a few of you were at our teaching on the Trinity. Um, We did this kind of seminar we're talking about who God is and what God is like and that, you know, Christians have always believed that he's one God in three persons. And so I spent months studying for that because I didn't want to turn everyone into a heretic. Uh, so I studied and I studied and I studied and I, I bought stacks and stacks and stacks of books that made me look really smart, but I never finished any of them, so it doesn't count. Uh, but, but I was reading and reading and reading, and the night before we were going to get together and have this conversation and eat some chicken and waffles and do all things that are good for the body of Christ. Um, I was sitting at Village Inn, and uh, I had my bottomless cup of coffee, because Village Inn gives you free unlimited refills, and I had my stack of books, and I'm, I'm kind of thumbing through them and making some last-minute notes and adjustments, and this guy across the way notices what I'm reading, which is this book that just in big letters says, The Trinity, lest there be any confusion, and, and he asked me, from a couple booths over, studying the Trinity. I said, yep, yep, kind of. Um, I, I, have to teach, I, have to teach my, uh, I have to teach my church about it tomorrow. And he said, oh, well, what are you going to teach him? And I was struck by how weird that question is because, I mean, that, do you want me to just give you, like, the 50 bullet points? Like, what do you want me to say here? And so I kind of gave him this awkward, like, uh, that it's true, and that's who God is. And he shakes his head and he goes, no, you're wrong, young man, which is super condescending, by the way. Uh, To to call somebody honey or sweetie or young man, especially if you're close to my age, it offendeth me. Um, So so he shakes his head and he goes, no, you're so wrong, young man. And so at this point, um, the the phrasing of Isaiah, uh, when God talks to Isaiah, came into my head this Come, let us reason. And so I go, oh, really, old man? I didn't say that. Um, But I said, 
oh, really? Okay. Um, you want to explain why? And so he's like, come on over here. And so I bring my Bible over there, and I bring my notes. And it turns out he's a Jehovah's Witness, which if you didn't know this, they don't believe in the Trinity. And so he sits down his Bible translation, which deliberately leaves out anything that would imply the Trinity. And I say, that's not fair. <laughs> You can't, if we're going to talk about this, you don't get to pick the translation that leaves out all the important verses. And he's like, that's fine. We'll use your translation. Good deal. And so we sit down, and I walk him point by point by point through pretty much everything that I taught the next day about how Scripture seems to imply that God, there's plurality within the Godhead. Let us make man in our own image. It seems to imply that there's unity, that I and the Father are one, uh, that, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all worshiped and glorified, that they're all treated as God, but that they uh, work together in perfect unity. And so there's this one God in three persons, point by point by point by point. And I thought I was doing a great job, and I, maybe I was, uh, because his response to every single point was to shake his head and go, no, that's not what that verse means to me. And I would say, I didn't say this because he was much older than me and I didn't want to be rude, but in my head I go, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It, matter, it matters what it means. And so to simply say that, that we're a people of the word is maybe not even to go far enough because the reality is that I sat across from a man and we both agreed at the beginning. We believe that this book is true, that it is God-breathed, that it is without error, that it is trustworthy, and that we will submit to anything it teaches. He would say the same thing, that, yeah, I, the Bible is, is everything. But there was a difference and that I came to Scripture ready to submit to whatever it said. And he came to Scripture looking for it to confirm what was true for him. And so we have to take things a step further, especially in the culture in which we live. Uh, here's, here's the reality. <laughs> and you can look at this even in law and in really in constitutional law right now. There is this movement within the way that laws are being passed where uh, in certain sections of the Supreme Court, they would say, uh, what doesn't matter is what the Constitution says uh, because in postmodernism, Texts don't have any meaning other than the one that you bring to it. And so it doesn't matter whether what's said is true or not. What matters is, can you make it say something that's true for you? And so laws are passed based not really on what the Constitution says, but on what seems to be true now as it is reinterpreted. But I want to say this. If what we said last week is true, that this book is God's word, then the authority and the truthfulness doesn't rest on whether or not it resonates with you in some warm or sentimental way. The truthfulness and the authority of it rests on the fact that the one who spoke it is truthful and that he does not change in his truthfulness, which means, which means that there are things that the Bible teaches that don't get reinterpreted with each passing generation. It means that we can't sit across from one another and both say, we believe the Bible, and one person say, I believe what the Bible teaches, and another person say, I believe what the Bible says is true for me. So Christians throughout history have, have recognized this, that it's not our job to come to this book over and over and over again and find totally different things with each passing generation. It's our job to come to this book and see what it has always meant and submit to it. And so they've summarized the biblical teaching in this thing called creeds, creeds or confessions. Now, you may have heard the term before, but essentially a creed or a confession is a summary of what Christians believe and what the Bible teaches. The earliest one goes back to the first century. 
And Christians have come to scripture and they've said, it is not okay for every person to come to this book and come away with a totally different opinion because if God is truthful, then he is consistently truthful and his truth doesn't contradict itself. And so if your truth says one thing and my truth says another thing, the, the thing that's missing is what is God's truth here? And so Christians have summarized what they believe that the Bible teaches, recognizing that its truth is not dependent on how you feel, but on the one who spoke it, and these things called creeds. And you might have actually seen a lot of signs. It seems like they pop up in some of the more, fundamentalist is the wrong word, but some of the more independent churches. Uh, These signs like no creed but the Bible, or no creed but Christ, or deeds not creeds. You see it on church signs. They they rhyme. They sound great. Um, But all of those are creeds in and of themselves, right? Because they're a summary of what they think that you should believe in what the Bible teaches. And I don't even know that that in and of itself is biblical. Because I would say as much as we are a people of the word, we are a creedal and confessing people because we believe that the Bible says something specific and that Christianity is comprised of specific Truths, And so let me just walk you kind of through the New Testament teaching, and we'll, we'll be jumping from Scripture to Scripture. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. At the heart of what Jude is saying here is that there are things about Christianity that are final that are permanent, that were once and for all delivered, and they don't get reinterpreted with each passing generation. Again, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, if you want to jump there, it'll probably be on your screen, um, because I gave the verses to Kyle this week. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, 15, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You can jump to Timothy. And Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 13 of his second letter, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Guard the good deposit entrusted. In Titus, he says this in chapter 2, verse 1, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. I want you to notice that in each passage of Scripture, over and over and over again, what Paul does not say is, you're free to figure out what this means for yourself. But instead, he says, this means something specific, and it is your job to adhere to the truth claims of Scripture, not to come up with new ones with each passing generation. Now, hear me when I say this. What I'm not saying when I talk about us being creedal and confessing, what I'm not saying is that there aren't things in Scripture that godly Christians can disagree on. Uh, I've heard it described in this way, that there's open-handed issues and there's close-handed issues, and what you hold in an open hand can be taken or given back. And so there's things in the Christian life that godly people can come to very different opinions on, like whether or not Christians can drink or have tattoos or men can have long hair or women can be ordained in ministry and on and on and on we can go. Godly people on all sides of that who come to Scripture and go, uh, I lean this way or I used to lean this way and now I lean that way. These are open-handed issues, right? 
And you can maybe slap some people with an open hand, but you're not going to do a lot of damage. But there are close-handed issues. And when you close your hand around something, I don't know if you've ever been hit in the face before. It hurts. You don't ball fists for casual, petty things. There are close-handed issues that fall into these categories of the sound words that Paul talks about to Titus, sound doctrine, the traditions of the apostles that they received in their letters. It falls into what Jude says, that it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You wrap your fist around this and you kill people over it. Not literally, that sounds awful. But you wrap your fist around it and you swing for these things. The divinity of Christ, that's not an open-handed issue. Jesus is God, and if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. The Trinity, that's a closed-fisted issue. Ironically enough, Santa Claus, the guy who he was actually based on, did punch somebody in the face over it. You can look it up. Santa Claus actually closed his fist and hit somebody in the face over the issue of the Trinity. Fun fact. Um, Things like the authority of Scripture. If somebody says that, well, I mean, the Bible is nice, but then we also have this, 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 and this, and when they contradict each other, you can go with any array of options in terms of what is going to be your authoritative truth. These are closed-fisted issues. These are things that we need to be creedal and confessional about. These are integral to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These are things that are biblical teaching that you have to bend over backwards to reject. And so we need to be confessional and creedal about these things. We, we need to take these things and recognize what is open-handed and recognize what is close-handed. And we can slap box each other on the open-hand things, but we're going to go to blows on the close-handed things. And it doesn't matter what it means to you, it matters what the text says. So why does this matter? I I mean, I I realize that there's probably a sense in which people go, yeah, but Travis, you're the guy who's super into like crossing yourself and liturgy and old dead people and all that stuff. And so it may sound nice for you to talk about these things, but, but, but why does it matter? What does it matter for the church? Why is it a mark of the church? Well, a couple things. To have creeds, to have confessions, statements about what we believe is this faith once for all delivered to the saints like Jude says. First, it's a matter of unity. It's something that takes steps towards the unity of the church. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, one of the things that he prays is that the church would be unified. Paul in Philippians, he encourages the church in Philippi, be of one mind on these things. Complete my joy. Be unified in your thinking around these issues. There's this plea over and again for unity in the church. But what is, what is our unity based on? It's not based on what we look like. It's not based on all of us making the same amount of money because we definitely don't. It's not based on us all liking the same kind of music. Right? Is our unity based on the fact that we're all from the same city? No, because I know some of you have just moved here. Uh, but, but you're here among us and, and gathered together. So our unity isn't based on these things. No, Christians have always recognized that we are united in the church, not by where we've come from or what we make or who we voted for. We are united by what we believe. And there are things that we believe that have to be non-negotiables or that faith that was delivered to the saints is compromised. The early church, baptism was a three-year process. 
because they recognized that once you were baptized, you were a full member of the people of God. And so for three years, you were walked through the Christian faith, what the Bible taught about sin and redemption and Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit and for years, back and forth, back and forth. And when it came time for somebody to be baptized, they were asked three questions. The first one, do you believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was made man, crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried on the third day, rose again in accordance with the scriptures? Yes. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life? Yes. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come? Yes. Okay, on that, I baptize you into the church. Not because you came from the same family or the same country or the same politics, but because we believe together that these things are true. That was four questions. I think they condensed some of them. So it matters for our unity that we recognize that there are things that are non-negotiables in the faith and that we define those very carefully because the last thing you want to do is define people who are genuine brothers and sisters out of the faith based on something that's not that important that you've made a big deal. It matters not just for our unity, it matters for our comfort. And, and, and here's what I want to say. Um, it's not, it's not that, that this is just about making you feel good. But when we as the church can come around scripture and, and say, listen, scripture teaches this. This is, this is the core teaching of Christ. Then we can take that and we can run with it. As we go through this class that we'll be starting in a few weeks on basic Christianity. The first point, uh, it's a series of questions and answers. And the first question is, what is your one comfort in life and in death? Now, some people would say, my comfort is God gives me nice things. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Or my comfort is that things are going really well right now, but that's going to change. But this creed has looked at what scripture says. It says that we're not our own, that we were bought with a price, that that price was the blood of the son of God, that we're redeemed, that we're loved, that we're sanctified, that we're justified before God. It looks at all of these things in scripture and it summarizes it with this answer. What is your one comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. I remember hearing this, um, this account of a Baptist minister uh, he's in the Reformed Baptist Church, and one of the elders at his church had leukemia. And so he was on his last leg. He was at the very end of his life. And so his wife had called the elders of the church, and he said, would you please come and just pray for my husband um, as he moves on into eternity, so to speak. And so he said, I walked in, and I sat my Bible down next to him, and I opened it up to the passages that this creed was rooted in, and I asked him one question. What is your one comfort in life and death? And he gave his answer, I'm not my own. That's a comfort. Not, not that our beliefs sway with how we feel. Not that scripture means whatever it means to us at any given moment. But that scripture's meaning is fixed. And that on the edge of eternity, knowing what it means and seeing it summarized you can ask that question and you can give that answer in confidence. So it matters for our unity. 
It's a source of comfort for us when we can summarize and understand Scripture clearly. And lastly, it matters for discipleship. Because we need to recognize as Christians what our first level issues. And when somebody becomes a Christian, those need to be the first things that we begin to teach. And we can get to the second level things later. Maybe even a lot later. Paul actually makes it very clear what you need to do to be saved. To believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And confess with your mouth the same thing and that God raised him from the dead. But Paul has no intention of you stopping there. Once you've made that confession, there is more. And as we as Christians come to Scripture and try to understand what is important to God based on the word that he's given us, then then when people come to Jesus and we fulfill the Great Commission where Christ says, go, teach people to obey all these things that I've commanded you, we need to know what that is. We need to be able to teach it. And and this is kind of what I want to close on is is it's important, one, for our unity that we can recognize the things that we're united around. It's important for our comfort that we can recognize that Scripture is clear and has spoken clearly. Lastly, it's important for discipleship, and our church is is moving towards discipleship. And, And discipleship doesn't happen by somebody opening up the Bible and saying, figure out what you think it means, and I'll tell you what I think it means, and both are right. A discipleship happens when somebody is able to come alongside another and say, we believe, and here's why. And to teach these things, just as Paul taught Timothy, and just as Paul encouraged Timothy to do, teach sound doctrine. Teach them what we believe. And so next week, we talk about discipleship and what it looks like for us to make disciples in light of what we believe about the word of God in which we are built. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that it's clear. Uh, God, there are things that we can go back and forth on, but God, on the most important things uh, in scripture, God, they are clear. And so we can say with one voice, we believe these things. We can hold fast uh, to these Patterns of sound words, uh, this faith once for all delivered to us as your people. Uh, God, I pray that you build us up in these things. God, as we move into, into just such practical things of talking about discipleship and, and how your people worship and, and what it looks like for your people to serve, um, God, I pray that, that this is the bedrock, Lord, that we are a people of your word, that your word is clear, that we have recognized its clarity. And based on your word, Lord, we disciple and we go to the nations and we serve and we worship in light of these things. And Father, as we come to your table right now, um, God, I pray that you meet with us, uh, Lord, and that we uh, are reminded uh, that it is clear in Scripture uh, that in your body and in your blood, we have forgiveness of sins. No matter how we feel at any given moment, your word proclaims it true that in Christ there is forgiveness for sins. And God, I pray that we're reminded of that tonight as we come to the table. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.